Some, a uh, couple months ago, John said to me, um, now you can do my eulogy, can't you, brother? And I said, no, he said, you can't do my eulogy, can you? And I said, I absolutely cannot. And then he put in his nose to Sola, I want Brent to do the eulogy. <laughs> the word of the Lord. In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask today for your strength and your power that you would help us, Lord, first and foremost, to glorify your holy name. Lord, give us the words and the wisdom to also memorialize our brother, our friend, and the one that we love so much, our Pastor John. We commit this time to you now, Lord, and we just cry out for your peace and your joy and your strength to fill our hearts as we perform the task you set before us. In Jesus' holy name, amen. John Prince was born July 25, 1961 in Dunkirk, New York, and was the son, son of John W. Nocio St. George Prince. John learned his work ethic early on from working on the family grape farm. He was a natural athlete, enjoyed recreational sports, including volleyball and swimming. John graduated from Brockton High School and received the Lord as his savior while attending Bethany summer camp his junior year and was determined to serve him the rest of his life. He was encouraged by his pastor, Larry Morrison of Brockton Baptist Church to attend Davis College to further the desire, his desire to serve the Lord and then he finished his bachelor's degree in 1985 at Liberty University. On June 4th, 1983, at Whitney Point Baptist Church, he married the love of his life, Sola C. Corbett. After graduation, John was called to the Alfred Elman Bible Church, where he's been for 32 years. He first served as youth pastor and then senior pastor. John was dedicated to his calling, the church. He was an avid student of the scripture, preparing messages that would spiritually feed the congregation, he was a man that was known to be a committed counselor and one who lived by his goal to finish strong. His life first that Pastor Ken read earlier was Romans 14, 7 and 8. John Prince is one of the best men that I've ever known. A true and trusted friend. John's moral integrity was above reproach. The Bible tells us that the problems that beset you are common to man. Well, John and I were accountability partners and I've heard the struggles of many men in my life. And let me say now that most of us did not compare to John Prince. Even a tiny improper thought that most men would pass off as normal, John would feel a deep conviction and want no part of it. John loved God's word. He would spend countless hours researching and reading every week. And on vacations, he, he would even study so he could bring God's word to us accurately and with conviction. When John first received the devastating news of his convictions. His first words to me were, I hope I can preach a few more messages. John did preach, and he walked very closely with the Lord. In this season in his life, he demonstrated tremendous courage. Because of his energy level, he would stay in his office and tell me to come and get him on the last song so it could serve his strength so he could come and preach to you. And there were times he'd have me push the pain button on his pack just so he could get through the day. I recently heard a message on heaven by David Jeremiah, and I wanted John to hear it. So I said, John, I think you'll find this message very encouraging. And he said, what was the passage? 
And I said, I think it was Revelations 23. And John said, Brent, I can tell you for sure it wasn't Revelations 23. <laughs> he said, because Revelation ends with chapter 22. And he smiled. <laughs> now, of course, you know, I knew that I was just picking on him. John was also very strong-willed. I'm not sure if any of you ever noticed that. <laughs> I like to think of myself as a very persuasive person, but I think I can honestly say I never changed John Prince's mind on anything doctrinal. And I think now I'm ready to say that John was always right doctrinally, except for the times he disagreed with me. <laughs> when John and Sol arrived here 30-plus years ago, they looked like little kids. I had a picture of John and Sol at Rushford Lake. And it's just amazing. You've seen some of the pictures, or you will. And uh, Sola made the comment, I can't believe this church hired such a young-looking couple. <laughs> but John and Sola's house and hearts were always open. Water polo in the pool, campfires, s'mores, volleyball. John loved it all, and he and Sola were great leaders. <sighs> he loved to go back home and spend time with his mom and help his dad with the grapes and often use the grape analogy in his preaching. He had a deep love for Sola and the family and the church, and much of our conversations through the years was with them. And I would imagine many of you have experienced John's gifts of help. He was very quick to help you put up insulation, put on a roof, move your junk from one place to another. Anything he could do to help you, he was there to do it. And John was a great Bible counselor. If you were ever counseled by John, I want you to know that your deepest secrets never left his lips. I know this because we were close, and he would say, Brent, please pray for this person for this issue. And I, of course, would always say, John, who is it? And he would say, you'll never know, brother. You'll never know. And I never did. I want to thank my son for allowing me to share his story. Um, Kyle's doing very well now. We're very thankful to the Lord. But he struggled at one time with serious addiction, and John just surrounded him. was there for him all the time. Uh, he was arrested in Pennsylvania, transferred back to New York State and was on probation with a violation, ended up in Allegheny County Jail. Long story short, people just can't go visit the jail, Pastor Ken, and John went right over. And he called me up and he said, Brent, I'm very concerned. He said, he just looks so bad. His body's shaking, he's trembling. And John was very moved by, by this and, and very upset by it. Well, let's fast forward a few months. He has his family on vacation. And I guess at the beach or whatever, but what's the thing you want to do when you leave vacation? Your car's packed, you want to go home. And the kids want to go home, but not John Prince. He took his family 100 plus miles out of the way so they could go see Kyle in Franklin County Jail. And I tell you this because he called me right after that meeting and he didn't get me. He put a message on my cell phone. I wish I had that message today. I'm going to try to do it justice. He said, Brent, you won't believe it. I saw Kyle, he is so good, he's healthy, he's happy, he's smiling. He told me he's reading God's word, he's praying. He was so blessed, so blessed. It just blessed my heart. There are times that John irritated me. <laughs> we used to ride places together, because I had a printing business, so, and John would work constantly in this church. There was a day when he did everything in the church, not just preach, but all the physical stuff. But, so I'd call him and I'd say, uh, one day, I'll tell you about one day, I said, you want to ride a Hornell with me? I got to drop off a job. I got about a 30 minute window. He says, yeah, no problem, give me 10 minutes. Well, knowing John, I knew to give him 15, right? I gave him 15, I get to the church, I walk to his office, he's on the phone, goes like this to me. I said, well, I knew this was coming. A few minutes later, he comes out, and he says, I said, you ready? I'm ready, but help me take this stuff down into the kitchen. Okay, we did that. 
Now help me take this stuff out to the shed. So we did that. So we're getting way behind, right? I go and do my five-second job, deliver it. John comes out to the car. Hey, Brent, would you mind running by Wegmans? I've got to pick a couple of things up for Sola. Sure, John, no problem. And, and Sola will tell you he was a multitasker. If he wants something, he's going to accomplish many different things at once. We go to Wegmans. I'm sitting in the car. He gets out. He goes, what are you doing? I go, you said you had to get a couple of things. He goes, well, come on in with me. Don't be silly. I'm telling you the truth. We bought groceries for the Prince family that lasted an entire week that day. <laughs> we, we brought him back to the car. John knows I'm a little irritated, in a kidding way. We always laugh with each other. And he looks at me and he says, you know, we've got to take these groceries home. i got stuff that's going to melt. So <laughs> I go, okay. And then knowing how I felt, he looked at me and he said, would you mind running by North Main Lumber for a minute? <laughs> He started laughing. He didn't really make me go there. Sola wanted me to tell this story about, years ago, John wrote me, someone dropped us off at Elsenheimer Chevrolet. I had a friend that had a little Chevy Civette that was worked on, and he was working during the day. He said, would you please go pick up my car for me? So John went with me. Someone drops us off. We get in the car. We go on our merry way. We get all the way to the Elman Dam, and I'd some, I had an uneasy feeling about it. And knowing my friend as I did, I said to John, John, look on the floor and see if you see a partially eaten cheeseburger, maybe some french fries laying around. He goes, no, it's perfectly clean. I go, John, we just stole the car. <laughs> we, we, were in the, we were in the wrong car. <laughs> and at that point, I figured we'd gone this far, so I said to John, because he was visibly eyes wide open. I said to him, you want to go rob a liquor store? <laughs> he, he wanted the car to go right back in, the, and I'll tell you, we got the car back, no one knew, another Chevette just like it was sitting right next to it. We, we got the right car and we came home. And I'm not sure if this next thing I want to say is actually for the elders. And I discussed this with Sola, but I can't remember if John actually said this to me or if I dreamed it or thought it. But I think he said to me that he wanted me to tell the elders that any time Brent wants to use a church fan for any reason at all, to make sure you let him do that. <laughs> you know, being a pastor is a very high calling. It can be a great and respected chair to sit in, but can also be lonely and demanding. As a pastor, you hold the burdens of the entire church body in your heart. As a pastor, you'll be loved by some, despised by others. It's one of the greatest places to be and one of the cruelest places to be. John Prince was a great pastor because he was called by God. As our shepherd, John, in fact, was a shelter in the storm for many of us. I also want you to know that John was a warrior for God. And he did battle for many of us on many occasions in prayer and through the word. And was a strong and mighty tower for us to lean on. I'm going to close with an actually a poem by a great, a great warrior, an Indian chief, Tecumseh, and he said this, When you arise in the morning, give thanks for the food and the joy of living. If you see no reason for giving thanks, the fault lies only in yourself. Abuse no one and nothing, for abuse turns the wise ones to fools and robs the spirit of its vision. When it comes your time to die, don't be like those whose hearts, whose hearts are filled with fear of death, so when their time comes, they weep and they pray for a little more time to live their lives over again in a different way. Sing your death song 
and die like a hero going home. Ladies and gentlemen, John Prince is a hero going home.
few days on the radio before he went home and I just had the thought in my head that it's going to be soon and I, I don't know how God does that. Uh, I'd like to read Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 and share a couple thoughts. We know John was about goals. So uh, when someone leaves us, it doesn't mean that their, their legacy or their goals end. I think that uh, some of his goals are our goals and they go with us. Um, and as, as leaders here, obviously, uh, John's concern was to train each of us to do the things that God needs us to do. Um, so some of those goals go with us. Um, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Uh, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And I was just thinking of two or three phrases that will echo in my mind of all the things that John taught me, um, that taught us as he spoke to us each week and our family, the lessons that we heard over and over again from Dad, those kinds of things that will just echo in our mind. And one of them was equipping the saints. Um, on a regular basis, and even in those five-minute conversations that you may have had with him, he was looking for a place to speak the word into your life or just encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Um, it was his goal to equip you, to equip you to know the truth and equip you to know what um, God wanted in your life. Um, so along the way, his way of teaching and, and leading and um, just encouraging us in the things that we should be doing for the Lord. For, for me, uh, specifically, obviously, to become an elder here, I, that was not necessarily on my radar that that was what God's urge was in my life and that John just kind of spoke that into my life from time to time. Just simple conversations along the way. And maybe there's things that you'll remember and uh, carry with you that um, John's simple words, small conversations were to point you to the master, point you to serve the one that he was serving, just to point you in that direction. What is it that God wants you to do? What is it that's important in your life that, that God's telling you is important? Uh, another phrase that that echoes with me, it might be related to one of John's goals uh, in serving his master, was to be ready to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And that's taken from Titus. And again, obviously passages for a church leader, but you personally, and I think that it was John's, John's goal for us that as shepherds um, and as church leaders, but as, as leaders in our family, as parents, um, influencing the people we work with in our community, in our church, I think it was his call to us and a goal that we would continue on with that we would exhort in sound doctrine and that we would know the word and we would use it accordingly um, but also just a willingness to contradict what is contrary and we we heard it over and over from him the things that he would hear going on in the world or the thoughts that the world thinks the way the way people think today is that really what the word says is that really the way god would want us to think about those things so again uh, maybe you've experienced that that ruffle of your feathers and and i guess as a church leader i've seen that on both sides of john the exhorting and truth but the the willingness to ruffle feathers if it meant that he was going to refute something that contradicted the word of god and maybe in your life he's encouraged you encourage i used the word encourage but it ruffled your feathers and you didn't like it and again that's that's love I mean, love, love is hard that way at times. But if you ever ruffled your feathers, and you might have some thought that, that goes along with you going forward, that, you know, it really was John's goal in, in my life personally, um, and, and maybe in your life in some way, that, that he would remind me that I should um, stand up for sound doctrine and refute those that contradict. I'm glad that Brent also mentioned um, John's early experiences at the farm. Um, in my training along the way here at church, just in teaching and developing the things that God needed me to do here. I was teaching the youth group uh, one evening. Um, I'm right ready, to, just about ready to teach my lesson. I got a five or ten minute lesson in the hallway about the vine and the branches. 
and, and it was very clear to me his personal experiences were coming to life because of what he read here. He lived it, and he, he tended the vines. Um, let me just read a few verses there. I think it's worthy to think about this because it was something that is kind of a theme in John's life. Again, maybe a goal for him personally, and we saw this even in the struggle in the recent months to stay connected to the vine. Um, our source of strength and our source of strength going forward is going to be, are you connected to God's power and his strength in your life? There's, there's really no other way to, to bear up under the questions we have in life about what happens and why things happen. Um, so let me just read these to you and a, a couple last thoughts before the guys continue. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And I guess the phrase that that's going to carry on with me is bear much fruit. And if that was a goal that John had personally in his life, it was also a goal he had for this local church flock and in your family for each of you that why did he train you the way he did? Why did he lead his family the way he did? It was that you would bear much fruit. And, and if we learn from, I won't read the rest of the verses for the sake of time, but if we learn from, from our Father in heaven, the vine dresser, that Christ came and he's our source, we have to stay connected to the vine. If you're not connected, you won't bear fruit. Um, I remember in sermon illustrations, we appreciate so many unique illustrations from bubbles to the dot that's probably still on the wall over here. John, John was not living for the dot. He was living for the line of eternity. Okay? And his illustrations were very clear to us. Even just to lift up a vine that would lay on the ground, it would not bear fruit. Lift it up. Okay? It has to be connected to the crown of the, the branch. The branch must be lifted up, connected to the crown of the vine. The energy comes from the vine. Okay, those, those things that were tended, the things we don't like in our life that get set aside or cut off, taken away, and we're left with a short branch, but yet it bears so much fruit. Why? It's connected to the vine. And that's the goal that, um, that will stay with me um, just in those few-minute conversations you can have with a man that he's taking his personal experience, he sees it as truth taught to us from Christ himself, and that's the way we should live. Those are goals that don't end because John has gone on before us. Those are goals that are still right here, and they continue on as we go forward. So take a few minutes sometime and think about one or two things that John said to you, even if it was one of the things that ruffled your feathers and say, you know, he was exhorting me, he was lifting me up, he was encouraging me to stay connected to the vine. So uh, while I was thinking about John this past week, I was uh, talking with my neighbor, who just happens to be Steve Rick, at my pigtail, <laughs> which is very helpful. Um, and he was saying that John must have been about 37 years old when Steve and his wife, Mary now, went to have be premarital counseling with John. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm 51. Like, would I have had the confidence at 37 to sit down with a couple and present to them, this is the way God sees marriage. This is the way it should be. This is the way it is. And that's very different from the world. Would I have had the confidence in my 30s or even now, to do that. And I don't know how sure John really felt in his counseling abilities, but I can say from his example and from his preaching and teaching where his confidence did come from. And uh, John's confidence was in the Word of God. I mean, you've heard him say it. Inspired, infallible, 100% true, Word of God. Alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow judging the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And that word of God, used by the Holy Spirit, placed in all believers in salvation, that's what John needed. That's what he had. He had everything he needed to be that faithful servant, that teacher, that counselor. It wasn't about John's abilities, and it's not about our abilities to try and do what God has called us to do. We have what we need. 2 Peter 1.3 says, He has given us everything we need for a godly life, 
through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, I do feel that John was greatly gifted as a teacher, as a Bible student, as a counselor, as a preacher, and he used those gifts to build up this body, to edify the saints, and God used him that way. But John's confidence was truly in the word of God and the spirit of God working in each believer and non-believer to take that true word, that true word that he spoke, to then change those lives. So John was a man of the word. Hey, Brent, did you see the sign up here? It says, please do not adjust the microphone. <laughs> Chris told me I was going to get a major shock if I moved it, but uh, thanks, Chris. I remember about 30 years ago, a young guy and his wife and his firstborn little girl coming to serve as our youth pastor. My wife and I had just got married. We were living outside of the Washington, D.C. area at the time. When we would come back to visit family, uh, and then finally moved back in 1990, I was amazed at the growth in John's teaching. I was wondering what was making the difference. It was something that I came to learn as I served with John. He was a warrior of the word. He was a warrior of the word. John was a very disciplined person and he spent hours reading and studying. We've heard the stories before. John's idea of a vacation was taking a pile of theology books to the beach to read them. <laughs> About 20 years ago, I expressed to John that I was feeling a bit stagnant in my walk, and John offered to help. The next morning, there were three 500-page theology books on my apartment <laughs> stairs. I was hoping for a couple pamphlets. <laughs> that was so, John, where many of us want the quick fix John pushed deep into God's word. God did a great work in John, and in turn, John delivered to us Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, a gourmet meal. There was no milk in what was being served, just the pure meat of the word. There are many times where we struggled to chew, but hopefully it drove us deeper into his word to seek out answers. One of the things that bothered John as he got sick was how much it limited his ability to be able to study. Uh, either the pain or the meds would not allow him to focus. He literally had about a half an hour of time, those last number of messages that he delivered, to be able to study. So he'd, he'd study a half an hour and then go through the meds and study for a half an hour. I don't think he ever worked harder because he had such a heart of a servant to want to give, he never stopped wanting to serve the body of Christ. When it became apparent that the disease was terminal and he, he gathered the elders and he, he shared, he got, I got four more messages. I got four more messages I want to do. And we're kind of, you know, we didn't say it in front of him, we would never do this, but we're, I think we're all kind of like, you know, what's, just, just sit back, just relax, you know, don't worry about, you know. And I think he kicked out those four messages and more, you know. It's just, just amazing. Like I said, he never stopped having the heart of a shepherd. He never stopped wanting to teach and help us. Never. John was uncompromising when it came to the word of God. Some people might say it this way. John was strong. <laughs> I praise God that, for John's strength. He helped protect the work called Alfred Elman Bible Church. Believe me, people, when it comes to God's word, you don't want someone who's going to be swayed by popular opinion. 
And there's a lot of opinions in the body of Christ, all right? There's only one that matters, and it's the word itself. And that's what he was founded on. John was a servant leader. John didn't mind getting his hands dirty, and he always enjoyed helping others. I know if, he had, if I had a need, John was able to, and he was able to help, he would. And he did many times over the years. I think of the scripture in Matthew 23, 11, where Jesus was talking to his disciples and says, the greatest among you shall be the servant. John loved to serve others, and he did in so many ways. John was not all about work. He also knew how to have fun, too. I recall game nights and at least one monster game of kick the can at the Prince's. Uh, during competition, John could get a little bit intense. Uh, we played some pretty competitive volley in a pretty competitive volleyball league in Wellsville for a number of years. And John came to a game one day with a big zero on his palm. And I asked him, you know, what's, what's that about? And he said, it's, this, it's, it's to remember that this really doesn't matter in the scheme of things. That was his reminder. And he was always looking for that way that he could honor Christ. You know, and he knew where he had some deficiencies. I wanted to share just a quick couple of things that I enjoyed about John's teaching. Uh, this is more of a question for you. I'll see if you can get it. As the last song was being played before John came to teach, do you recall seeing what he would do? Do you recall seeing what he would do? He would step away from his seat and he'd stand right there. It always brought a smile to my face and it was like the starter, he's getting ready into the blocks and ready to go. He was, he was wanting to give us what God had prepared his heart all week long. I couldn't wait. Here, I always put a smile on my face to see him in the starting block, ready to go. I really enjoyed how transparent John could be from the pulpit, but I'm not sure Sola always did. <laughs> I also enjoyed the illustrations that he would use. Some of my favorites are the auction portrait of the sun, uh, the train bridge, uh, a recent one was mentioned, uh, bubbles, and a personal favorite, and I'll tell you more about it if you want to see me afterward, the poop and the brownies. Okay? <laughs> it's a great illustration. Just to... So how do we honor John's memory? I really think it's by imitating what John did for us. We need to be people of the word. We need to pour ourselves into the word and let it transform us, even as it transformed John so many years ago and continue to transform him into Christ's likeness. By serving others, God has given us all unique gifts to serve the body. Are you using them? Are we using them? And by being people of prayer, we all need God's wisdom more now than ever. Thankfully, God says he gives generously to those who ask. Serving alongside John was one of the great privileges of my life because I knew he was following hard after the Lord that I desire to serve. Diane and I had the blessing and privilege of hosting a young 
Youth Pastor Canada and his wife when they arrived in Almond several years ago. To give you an idea how long ago that was, Ashley was three weeks old. <laughs> True to his nature, excuse me, uh, to give you an idea, oh boy, I, should, I wrote this out so I wouldn't do this. Re push, what is it? Re uh, yeah, what's that, what's that lady say when you're not going in the right direction? Recalculating. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your graciousness. I'd like to share a couple of light-hearted memories of Pastor John. One of the many qualities that he had, and I'm sure this family's going to agree, was that he was frugal. <laughs> frugal in many ways, right? Well, some of you remember that princes used to live in the house down at the bottom of the hill. And I'm not sure how many of the kids were alive at that time, were born at that time. <laughs> were born at that time. But Sola had called my wife and said, would you mind coming up and watching the kids and kind of take care of things? We're all really ill. And uh, I just would like to need some help. So my wife took right off, went up and started doing what she needed to do to help. And uh, she, like all good housewives, decided to put a load of laundry in the laundry, in the washing machine. She did, and uh, it came time to dry it, and so she took them out, what every woman would do, put them in the dryer. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? <laughs> so she put them in the dryer. Uh, and being John, John was frugal, he decided so out of hanging the clothes on the line on the back porch instead of spending the money to run the dryer. So my wife didn't realize that, put the clothes in the dryer. But what they didn't tell her was that John and Sola had hidden the kids' chocolate bunnies for Easter <laughs> in the dryer. <laughs> you know the rest of the story. <laughs> Again, they were very gracious about it. On several occasions, our son Kevin would be going to the landfill, which would go right by John's house. He wanted Kevin to stop every time he went to the landfill so he could look through what we were going to throw away <laughs> to see if there was something that he might be able to use. He was always thinking ahead of things he could do further on in life, always visionary. But I want to turn that thought about being frugal to a different area. Even though he was frugal, he was a very giving man. Whether it was his time, his finances, his biblical insight, he was ready to help anyone that you've heard from many of the other fellows. At Pastor John's request, the elders met with him on June 14th in the ICU unit at Jones Memorial. Not one of us had an idea what was on his heart. And true to his nature, he shared with us the concern for all of you and the future of this church. It wasn't about him and what he'd been going through. He wanted to reinforce the things that we talked about in previous meetings as to the direction of the church in the future. I've been blessed to have known many godly men. Notice I didn't say perfect, but godly men. 
four of them have gone on to be with the Lord. The first one was Alan Pierce, the, one of the original elders for the Alfred Allen Bible Church, 1980. One was one of our founding elders of this church, Lee Ryan. Many of you knew Lee. The third man was Dick Snavely, who just passed away a few weeks back, founder of Family Life Ministries. And of course, the fourth is Pastor John Prince. Everyone needs one or more godly individuals that they can look to for fellowship, guidance, and direction. All of those men I just mentioned were men that I deeply loved and respected because of their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. This kind of goes along with what Billy's last few words were. He used the word imitate, and many of you have heard me say this, but I cherish this verse ever since Alan Pierce was taken from us. It's Hebrews 13, 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. Did you hear those final three words? Imitate their faith. I trust you have people in your life whose faith you desire to imitate. I praise God Almighty for Pastor John Prince and his family, bringing them into our lives. The world doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior. The world that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior would be saying goodbye right now. Goodbye. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we can say with confidence, until we meet again. We loved you dearly, Pastor John. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I thought I was ready for this until Bill started blubbering. <laughs> After he introduces himself as the Alpha and the Omega in chapter 1 of the book of the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, verse 18 says this, I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. It's my honor to address you on the occasion of Pastor Prince's homegoing. It was an honor to know him on multiple levels. We were acquainted, I was trying to nail it down, but the closest I can come is more than 35 years. I knew him when he was a student, even before he started dating Sola, and uh, we've got fond memories all along the way. Uh, when he began to date Sola, uh, my wife's sister, I watched their relationship grow and blossom, and, and that was a lot of fun. And uh, Sola will recall me <laughs> cheering for him, actually butting into her personal life and presumptuously telling her, Sola, you'll never do better than John Prince. <laughs> I think she was debating on a second or third date or something, what's wrong with you? You need to go out with this man. He's a good man. And uh, I knew that from the first time I met him. John's 10 years younger than I, and initially our relationship was akin to student-teacher, uh, but we always had great respect for one another, uh, really right from the beginning. And uh, once he married Sola, we became a part of what I think of as a small band of brothers. 
courageous enough to marry Corbett girls <clears throat> and, and, make it, and make it work. Uh, very often, I don't know if he ever shared this with Saul, I never did with my wife, but we would cast knowing glances at one another during family get-togethers to watch the inevitable family dynamics. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and we were kind of a part of it, but yet not a part of it. <clears throat> and then he became a pastor here, youth pastor and then senior pastor. And from that time on, and really even before in my eyes, John and I were contemporaries. We were peers. We were fellow laborers in Bible-believing, Christ-honoring churches, caring for the Lord's people. When we got together, regardless of what the circumstance was, whether it was a Thanksgiving holiday or hunting or at the beach or whatever it was, just visiting one another, we would always discuss church work. Always. I mean, I don't know of a time when we were together when either he or I wouldn't bring something up. We were always learning from one another the best ways of doing things. We were always networking, if you will. Our our wives often uh, did the same thing. Uh, We shared a common love for the flock of God. And it didn't matter whether it was a flock in this city or that village. We, We cared about it. Uh, One of the things we also shared is a common philosophy of ministry, which I'm gratified to hear uh, today. It was founded on God's Word. Our philosophy of ministry was found in God's Word. And I I love talking to Pastor Prince uh, due to that fact and due to his incessant reading and studying. He was always uh, up with what was going on. And uh, I think that was the secret, if you haven't figured it out yet, of his long and very fruitful ministry. It was focused and founded upon God's Word. Uh, He never stopped learning. In fact, three months ago, we were together, and uh, first thing he asked me is, what are you learning? What are you learning? Sharing our thoughts were wonderful occasions for me, and I I will really miss that. They were so great because he was always open. Uh, We didn't really talk theology per se as in a system, but we talk theology, we talk doctrine. And I can, uh, in fact, what I'm going to share with you in just a moment, I, I can picture him saying, now how is that going to work with, and then he'd quote a Bible verse, or we'd talk about something else, because the system had to work, it had to be interlocked. If, if you had an idea or a thought from a verse, it, it's not taken in isolation. It, it had to be part of uh, the whole, and, and I, I love talking to him. We would take trips sometimes to, to the shore on vacation. It would be a six-hour trip, and they'd go by like nothing. He, he and I would stay and, and do Sunday. Our wives would be down there Saturday, and we'd join them, and we would talk incessantly all the way down, and I, uh, I've got fond memories of, of those things. Um, there is no one I would rather spend an hour talking to, especially about doctrine, than Pastor Prince. Toward the end, I tried to make that absolutely clear to him how much he meant to me, but I don't know if uh, he'll know one day. He'll know one day. So what can I share that will comfort, challenge, maybe educate? Certainly something of which Pastor Prince would approve. And it was a subject he and I had both uh, recently been forced to deal with and contemplate much, and that is the subject of death. That's what I want to talk to you about just very briefly this morning. It used to be common for a doctor to write on a death certificate natural causes. I don't believe they do that much anymore. 
But I can still remember in my first church being present when someone passed away and the, the coroner came. It wasn't even a doctor, it was a coroner. And that's what was written on the death certificate. And the thought struck me, there is nothing more unnatural than death. Nothing more unnatural. Isn't it odd that we humans are surrounded by death, literally, and, and yet we know so little about it? been going on generation after generation. I love uh, the Old Testament. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and he died. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and he died. And he died. You get it? You get it? It's kind of profound, really, when you think about it. God's Word speaks to us on multiple levels, does it not? If we do deal with death, we tend to do it only superficially. I guarantee you, however, each one of you will have to deal with it personally and up close. You'll lose somebody close to you. I mean real close. Somebody that you would switch places with in a heartbeat. You'll lose them and you'll look for answers. So I'm suggesting this morning that there are some answers in God's Word that can be a great comfort. Of course, the world has its own ideas about death and dying, but many, if not most, are unbiblical and border on mere wishful thinking. So consider with me what God has stated about death and dying. Just going to look at two verses, and uh, you're familiar with these. The first time death is mentioned in Scripture is Genesis 2.17. God, after creating Eden, puts an innocent Adam and Eve in this paradise and says there's only one thing you can't do. You see that tree there, the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You can't eat of that. And he says, in the day you eat thereof, ye shall surely die. Isn't it interesting? God didn't say if. He said when. Didn't take God by surprise. He knew what they were going to do. And uh, law of first mention. Word for die, death, and dead in the Old Testament are all the same root in the Hebrew. You, you get the idea from the context as to the, uh, the tense of the word and how it's to be used. There's varying shades of meaning depending on the context. For instance, uh, death actually became a synonym for the Old Testament word sheol, which means grave. So sometimes death is mentioned as grave, which is a place of holding for deceased spirits, even now. Lazarus and the rich man, Luke chapter 16, that's where... Lazarus and the rich man were, this place of holding, and of course there was a good side and a bad side to it. And Old Testament, that's called Sheol, New Testament's called Hades, it rightly means grave. Sometimes in the New Testament the words translated hell, which is misleading, I tend to think of hell as the lake of fire, something future, uh, not the grave where the departed go at this point in time. If we understand this idea, we better understand what Revelation means when it speaks of death being cast into the lake of fire. Death itself, but also this place known as the grave, will one day be gone. Well, we don't have to consider types or look far to understand what death meant to Adam. When God said, in the day you eat thereof, ye shall surely die. Now, nobody had died yet. Death hadn't been introduced, not even in the animal kingdom, because sin hadn't been introduced yet. But he knew what it meant. It was a little bit like my dad growing up on Friday night. Dad always worked Saturday, but he was off Sunday and Monday. Uh, Friday night, he would say to me, I want the lawn mowed tomorrow by 3.30 when I get home. Now, he didn't have to say, if you don't do it, you'll surely die, but it was there. <laughs> it was understood. If I decided to disobey, I'd be alienated from my dad, whom I loved. And I knew he loved me, but I wasn't about to disobey a direct expectation that he had. So what does death mean? 
First and foremost, it is separation. And uh, if you've never heard this before, keep it in mind as you read those verses that litter the New Testament with regard to death. It's separation. In physical death, the spiritual part of the person is divided from the material part. The spirit and soul are gone, the body's left. Separation. It is unnatural. We know it is unnatural. However, we tend to think, and when I say we, I mean believers, believers think of death as an absolute biological fact. But it is neither merely a biological, nor is it a final fact. And this is what the Lord gave me, and I, I, I would have loved to have talked to Pastor Prince about this. Death is really a principle, the result of sin. He and I were both familiar with a, a man who taught theology up at Davis College, and he always referred to sin as a principle. Uh, synonym for what I mean is law. Law. In my flesh dwells no good thing. It's a principle of sin. You have to teach your children to tell the truth because in their flesh dwells no good thing. It's the principle of sin, the law of sin, and it will manifest itself, which is why Pastor Prince went to a volleyball game with a big zero on his hand. We used to just say, we have to go to work tomorrow. So we're not going to, uh, you know, do or die on the athletic field or volleyball court or basketball court. So death is similarly, like sin itself, a principle, the result of sin. By the way, Scripture verifies this, Romans, uh, I believe it's Romans uh, 8.2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ sets us free from the law of sin and death, or the principle of sin and death. The law, or the principle of the spirit of life in Christ, which if you're a believer you have, sets us free from the principle of sin and death. We no longer have to obey sin's commands. And death is of short duration for the believer. This idea of death as a law bringing separation is contrary to the idea of modern culture that insists that death is the complete cessation of the person. They're no longer here, you know, they're, they're elsewhere. And it's, you know, for the world, it's always a good place. They have no objective reason to think that, no objective source for that truth. But they, they like to think that. And, of course, everybody makes it. Until you start questioning them, you know, was Hitler going to be there? Well, no, not Hitler. Well, well, what about, and that's a slippery slope, isn't it? And by the time you go through the uh, Ten Commandments, you realize none of us deserves a good place when we're gone. If we stand before the God who gave us the Decalogue. The theory holds the person at physical death simply ceases to be. But such a position is counterintuitive in the extreme. Like the human conscience, Scripture tells us God has placed eternity in the hearts of the sons of Adam that we might be exercised thereby. That's Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has placed eternity in the hearts of the sons of Adam that we might be exercised thereby. How long do you want to live? I don't know about you, I want to live forever. Who put that idea there? Who put that yearning there? Death is unnatural. It's unnatural. Everyone knows there is a beyond here and now. Everybody knows that. I have not run into anybody that doesn't know that there's something after this. Life after death. They, they believe it. In fact, most people not only realize that, they realize judgment awaits. Hebrews 9.27 says, it, appointed un, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. They know that intuitively. Just like our conscience, God has placed it there. We know there's more than here and now, and we know we're going to be held accountable. 
one of, one of five great works. Do you realize God's only ever done five things, only ever will do five things, starting with creation, and then uh, preservation, redemption, evaluation, and the eternal state. Kind of neat when you think about it that way. Simplified. So, what does this mean for us here today? It means Pastor Prince has never been more alive than he is right this moment. Right this moment. Yes, he's experienced physical death. He, his person, his spirit, his soul, has been separated from his body, but Scripture says, you can finish this for me, absent from the body? Bingo. For the believer. For the believer. We cannot even imagine what he's seeing, what he's hearing. He's communicating. These are all things on a spiritual level. I remember Melody's dad one time speaking about the soul, that a soul is able to see, a soul is able to hear, a soul is able to experience pleasure and pain. And Reread Luke 16 and Lazarus and the rich man. I can't even begin to comprehend what's going on in glory right now. Certainly the most wonderful fellowship, the most beautiful scenery, if you will, but most of all the presence of the Lord. One would have to be awfully selfish to wish a fellow believer back as much as we might uncaringly wish to do so. But there's another critical idea, another Bible truth to consider, and I'll conclude with this. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus says he has the keys of the grave and death. In Revelation 21.4, this is the second to the last mention of death in God's word. Familiar verse. Revelation 21.4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. I'm so thankful for that verse. All the things that accompany death will be removed forever. Death was never intended by God. It was never intended by God. He, he knew it would happen. In eternity past, I, uh, I do profound moments sometimes uh, before our service, which is usually something to do with science. And one of, one of the things uh, the evolutionists like to throw around are those big numbers, millions of years, billions of years. They said, hey, they got nothing on Christians. The Trinity existed in eternity past. Wrap your head around that. There was never a time God didn't exist. He always existed. And in eternity past, the Trinity got together and said, well, do we want to do this or don't we want to do this? What do we want to do? Because if we do creation, we have to have a plan for redemption. Interesting. <clears throat> you see, neither humans nor angels can be independent. So when sin was introduced, first through Lucifer, and then beguiling Eve, and then Adam following, in our disobedience, sin was introduced, sin as a law or a principle, inhabited the flesh and is passed on generation to generation. And when we choose to be independent, there is something metaphysically wrong with that because we do not have life in and of ourselves. 
God alone is the self-existent one, the great I am. We are all dependent, the plants, the animals, everything that has life comes from him. So you see, when someone insists on turning their back on God, they're turning their back on the life giver and the life sustainer. We are dependent. We will always be so. And so the only alternative is death, separation. Those who will experience the second death will, in fact, be getting what they sought, independence from God for eternity. And it will not be a good thing. It is called God-forsakenness. God-forsakenness. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 tells us death will be the last thing to be destroyed. All through the millennial kingdom, when Christ is ruling and reigning, death still exists. It's the last enemy to be destroyed. I love Hebrews 2.14. In fact, John and I talked about this verse uh, quite a little bit because the truth of it shocked me. Um, Jesus had to take on flesh so he could destroy him who had the power of death, that is Satan. Which is why Jesus called him a murderer from the beginning. Satan knew if he introduced sin, he'd be introducing death. And that's his power. That's his hold over the human family. Thankfully, we've got a Savior that went through that door that was alive and dead and now lives evermore. So think about death. You're going to have to deal with it, either yours or someone very close to you at some point in time, unless, of course, the Lord comes, which we all hope for as believers. We're all going to die, some of us sooner, some of us later. But whether sooner or later, we should be living now as if we were already in eternity. And if Pastor Prince could come back for just one moment right now, he'd tell each of you to trust Christ as your Savior if you have not done so. Eternity's too long. And only the Lord and His kingdom will endure. And we will be eternally glad we are a part of it. This life can be good, but it makes no sense at all unless Christ is central. And then he would tell those of us who've trusted in Christ to live for him. Stop the petty bickering. Stop living and thinking in the flesh. Allow the Spirit to guide you. Grow up. Grow up and be fruitful. Finally, for those of us who grieve and grieve deeply because our friend, our pastor, our brother, our son, our father, our husband is gone from earth. You will find grief is not something you get over or work through. It is something you absorb, something you adjust to, something you endure, something you accept because you have to. And it is something that changes you. Let it change you for the better. Remember, Pastor Prince is now the one who destroyed death. In the end of Revelation, the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. It will not be much longer. The months and the years continue to roll. Each day brings us closer, not to realizing our vain schemes our plans, our goals, our dreams, all of which will perish. But that time when we'll stand before the Lord Jesus, 
Preachers often use that phrase. I, I use it a lot myself. We're all going to stand before Jesus. We're all going to kneel before Jesus. We're all going to kneel before Jesus. Let's use the life and the death of Pastor Prince to inspire us to do greater things for the Lord he served so faithfully throughout his time on earth. Thank you, Rich. About this time you're asking how many people are going to speak today? <clears throat> well, we're almost done. I too knew Rich, I, I too knew John before he started dating my sister. And by the way, the brothers of those sisters, Rich, still don't know if we fit in the family. <laughs> <clears throat> but I knew John when he was normal before Sola. <clears throat> I was. <clears throat> really hoping to get out of uh, speaking at John's thing today, but I'm really glad that Sola called me and asked me to do it anyway. Um, because she asked me to talk about the good news. Rich talked about death. And um, th that's some bad news in death. Um, but there's some good news in the scriptures, amen? Amen. Uh, the gospel, in a nutshell, and I'm going to do this quickly. She said a few minutes. A few goes from three minutes to 300. I'll be in there. <laughs> in there. But Corinthians says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of most first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised again the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I saw the pictures in the singing of the garden tomb and the door. Uh, my mind went quickly to the two times I walked through that door with John. And the times on the Mount of Olives and where the Temple Mount and, and all of these places where uh, John and I wept about this wise stand you hear gazing on, on this mount. This same Jesus is, is coming back. John had a passion for God. And he had a passion for seeing people come to know God. Because this truth of dying and being buried and being raised again is the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? And it's a very simple truth, but it's, it's a truth that after years and years of study and after years and years of knowing the Savior is deeper than I still comprehend. The creator of the universe, the ruler, our Savior, 
it's, it's a deep subject. But it's a simple gospel. I want to talk just a minute about Psalm 23, knowing the gospel shepherd. And I'm going to paraphrase as I read this morning. I, I didn't prepare anything. Yesterday I told someone I didn't prepare anything. Five minutes, what do, you, what do you say in five minutes? This morning I started typing and three pages later I said, I've got to stop. <laughs> I know that's over five minutes. But knowing the gospel shepherd, I'm paraphrasing a bit here. The Lord was John Shepherd. He didn't want for anything. He made John to lie down in green pastures. He led John beside the still waters. He restored John's soul. He led him in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though John walked this past year through the valley of the shadow of death, he didn't fear evil. The rod and the staff, they comforted John. A table was prepared before him in the presence of his enemies. His head was anointed with oil, and his cup overflowed. Surely goodness and mercy followed him all the days of his life. And now, John dwells in the house of the Lord forever. If you knew John, you knew this was a reality to him. If you don't believe that, you, you really didn't know John. John not only knew the psalm here, but John knew the shepherd personally. And he would ask of you today, like Rich says, if he was here, he would ask you, do you know the shepherd? Because he has a passion for that. In fact, John bought these little black booklets from John Blanchard. Where do we go from here? They're in the back. And he'd want you to take one with you. He bought them for you. So you know, where do you go from here? Because there was a time that John trusted in Jesus Christ as a savior. And, and if you want, on the bulletins, make a correction. Because in the front it says, John Prince was born July 25th, 1961. And he entered into eternal life on June 30th, 1917, 2017. From the eulogy, John trusted in Christ as a savior in his junior year in high school. That was approximately 1978. You see, John entered into eternal life in 1978, didn't he? So please correct that. I know what they're saying, but it's incorrect. Not that I'm fussy. But you say, you know, Dathan, well, I, I, I don't believe any of that that you're talking about. I don't believe what Rich was talking about, death. I don't, I don't believe what you're talking about with the shepherd and, and salvation and everything else. And, and I just believe God has not been good to me. 
God has not been fair with me. You don't know uh, what I've been through. Well, let, let me read this again for you. You see, the truth is the truth whether it is believed or not. But if that's you this morning, the Lord is, is not your shepherd. And you will be in wanting of everything. You are not lying down in green pastures. You are not being led by the still waters. In fact, it, it is very rough waters. And you are going to be anxious about a lot of things. And you will probably have a lot of mental health issues and taking a lot of meds for it. Your soul is not being restored. You are being, not being led in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. In fact, you're just wandering in the wilderness. And when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and you will walk through it, from what Rich said, you are going to fear everything. For no one will be with you. No rod, no staff will comfort you. No table is being set before you in the presence of your enemies. No one will anoint your head with oil and your cup will be empty. No goodness or mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And the worst part of it is you will not dwell in the house of the Lord ever. That's pretty heavy. So let's end on a positive note. Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I, too, want to see my Savior's face. John's there because heaven is a wonderful place. Just a couple thoughts about heaven as we close. Heaven is wonderful because heaven is a real place. Nowhere in scripture does it suggest that heaven is merely a spiritual facade or an empty motive for, for religious fervor. To believe the Bible is to believe in heaven. To doubt heaven is to doubt God himself. Heaven's a wonderful place because heaven is a part of our inheritance. This is a reunion almost today for me. My family's here. People from our pastor here that, that, that have known the family for years. What, what a reunion it was yesterday just to, to watch people come in and out that, that we have known for years. Imagine what heaven's going to be like. It is our inheritance. What a reunion. That's going to be. Heaven's wonderful because heaven is where Christ is. Talk about heaven, the pearly gates and the golden streets. Heaven would not be heaven if Jesus wasn't there. Heaven's wonderful because that's where he is. Fourthly, heaven's wonderful because it's forever. What's better than being with Jesus and being with him forever? 
Lastly, heaven is a wonderful place because heaven is not hell. I could preach on these five points for a long time because you can go to the scriptures and fill the page with passages that talk about all of those things. All of those things. To God be the glory for a preacher who ended well. Thank you, Brendan Clancy. John is with the king. But what, what a beautiful poem. That says it. That says it. If you don't know the Savior, I ask you to, to, to contemplate the truths of the word of God. Take this pamphlet with you. And John's desire would be that you come to know the Savior that he loves. That you come to live for the Savior that he loves. And we look forward to seeing him again. For me, very soon. Very soon. Amen. Like you've never been before The life you knew In a thousand pieces on the floor And words fall short in times like these When this world drives you to your knees You think you're never gonna get back To the you they used to be Tell your heart to beat again Close your eyes and breathe it in Let the shadows fall away Step into the light of grace Yesterday is a closing door You don't live there anymore Say goodbye to where you've been And tell your heart to beat Let that word wash over you It's alright now Love's healing hands have pulled you through So get back up, take step one Leave the darkness, feel the sun Cause your story's far from over And your journey's just begun Tell your heart to be Close your eyes and breathe it in Let the shadows fall away Step into the light of grace Yesterday's a closing door You don't live there anymore Say goodbye to where you've been And tell your heart to beat again
everything for your good Tell your heart to beat again Close your eyes and breathe it in Let the shadows fall away Step into the light of grace Yesterday's a closing door months ago, I was riding with John to see Rick. On the way, he said, Leo, don't hit any potholes. The car might fall apart. <laughs> he really did. Uh, we had a good visit with John, uh, with Rich, and on the way back, he said, Leo, whenever someone dies, he said, you always quote a passage from Thessalonians. So this, not from me. This is a passage, John, I'm going to share with you. It's pretty awesome. So, Pull myself together. We're all trying to do that, right? Colossians 3, remember this. Write it down. It says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. It's finished. He said, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. We're not too good at that. It says, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. And this is what, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John, for wanting me to do that. God bless you. Wow, what a roller coaster of emotions it's been today. On behalf of the family, I'd like to thank all of you for coming and sharing your love, um, for being there for them, to be praying for them, to hold their hand. And as most of you have referred to earlier here today, John was always a, a planner. Okay. With him, he was always a planner. I, he called his elders in, into the hospital room. I was wondering when I sat right there when it was going on, I said, I wonder if he, I wonder if he planned the last elder's agenda. <laughs> By golly, he did. He called him to the office. That's what he did, where he was at. I know he did. I knew he wouldn't let him down. And so, right down, if you sat on a five-year plan, if you sat on a building program, whatever it was, John was always a planner. And I just here to tell you, that today he planned the funeral lunch. He told Sola, make sure we have roast beef for my funeral lunch. <laughs> and so guess what you're getting? 
roast beef for your funeral lunch. And Sola says, make sure you tell the family or the congregation there, they're all welcome to stay. And but the thing is it's gonna be about thirty minutes because we wanted the kitchen staff to be in here to be a part of the service. Okay? So I'm gonna ask that you allow me to dismiss the family first. And after that, after I dismiss the family, then you can mingle, share a memory, share a smile. Uh, remember John, the last day of June, I lost a very dear friend. You did too. So, thank you very much. <laughs>